Uh, I was looking uh, this week, I looked up uh, best-selling books, best-selling Christian books over the last, like, well, in history, like since I've been keeping those kind of records, and, and outside of the Bible, that is. The Bible is the best-selling book in the history of the world. I actually read this week that over 5 billion copies sold of the Bible, and it's far away the most. But then when you start to look at kind of the Christian genre of what are the best-selling books, most of what was on the list of top 10, I was like, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. You start to look at it, and it's things like uh, the Book of Common Prayer and Pilgrim's Progress and Fox Books of Martyrs. Uh, a lot of books that you've maybe heard of or you've seen at different times, maybe you've read some of those. Uh, then you get a little further down the list, and it was things like Lord of the Rings and uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis. Both of those books around Christian themes as they're, they're fictitious stories, but they're telling and trying to illustrate some of that. But then as you got to the bottom of the top ten, the last two, I guess, maybe surprised me a little bit, but... Um, I'll explain this in a second why I say this, but maybe disappointed me a little bit. And that was, uh, it was Left Behind series was one of them. And the other one was The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. If you know those two books, if you've ever heard of those two books, uh, both were really, really popular for a time, still are in some ways. They've placed a great shadow over our American culture in a whole lot of ways. And if you know anything about either one of those books, they're both about end times, uh, this case of Left Behind, it's a fictitious story about what happens in times. Hal Lindsey's book, The Great, uh, the Late Great Planet Earth, is about end times. But both of those, Left Behind and the other, are really built around speculation. Like looking at signs and what might be and what might be coming and trying to piece it together. And I say I was a little disappointed that those are on the top ten most sold Christian books ever for this reason. Jesus talks a lot about his second coming. He talks about the end of time of what's come. Uh, eschatology, we say, uh, the, the study of things that are not yet come or the end things. And Jesus talks about it a lot, but in all the times in the Bible, whether it's Jesus or Paul or the apostles that talk about it, they never ever talk about it so that you would speculate, ever. And so there's these two books that cast this huge shadow on American culture that are all built around speculation. And so as I was thinking about that and the, what the, how that's cast kind of the shadow on our culture, I think what's happened is when we start to think about end times and what's in the future and what's coming, there's this, this thing almost like an eschatological rubbernecking, right? Do you know what rubbernecking is, right? You, you see a car crash and you slow down to look at what happened. I, I was taking my boys up to the high school, uh, I think it was Thursday. I was taking Quinn up to a, a football game with his friends and I was driving down 53 and it took 20 minutes to go about two miles because there was a fender bender up on, on 53. And I got all the way up there and I waited and waited and waited and got up there and it was this tiny little fender bender and both cars were moved off to the side and everybody was fine. But it took 20 minutes because everybody had to slow down and look, right? So what rubbernecking is, there's an accident and you get up there, you're, you're complaining the whole time, why is it taking so long? And then you get up there and you do the same thing, you slow down and you look and is anybody hurt and is the, car, is the car messed up and you start looking at all those things. But even that term, rubbernecking, is to stare with exaggerated curiosity. But I was thinking about it in that terms of eschatological rubbernecking when we start to really with exaggerated curiosity try to figure out things that have not yet happened. It's kind of like with a car wreck. When you slow down and you make everybody late and you're not actually getting to where you're going so you can slow down and stare, but you're not helping anything. Nothing good comes from that. 
And I think in a lot of ways, that's what we do with end time stuff. We start to try to figure it out and this might mean this and this might mean this and it becomes all this speculation, but it's not actually doing any good. And actually, I would even say it goes against why Jesus even tells us these things and why he's telling us to begin with. And so we can easily kind of get sucked off into the weeds into something that just isn't important at all. And so I want us to really think about uh, this today as we look at Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 is one of those passages that becomes kind of the focus of all the speculation and the things that Jesus says here. And, oh, does this mean this or does it mean that? And we get kind of taken off into all these different things. But the truth is, I think oftentimes we severely misread this passage. We miss the big important things that he's saying for secondary things that really aren't all that important. And so the way I want us to look at it, and I think it's helpful as we start to look at Matthew chapter 24, is first I want us to look at the the context. Uh, First rule of interpretation of the Bible is to look at the context. What's going on? Who's talking? What's happening around? What brought us to this place? And in this particular case, there's a lot of things that just happened as Jesus is leaving the temple. A lot of things that he said that we'll talk about. And then there's a specific question that his disciples ask him that he's then answering in Matthew chapter 24. And so that's the context. But then the second thing I want us to think about is how he's answering their question. Because I think if we get that wrong, which we often do, that leads to all sorts of errors. And then lastly, we'll consider why this is important. One word, just kind of a warning at the beginning. As we go into this, this is kind of part one. We're going to get to the end. And now Jesus is going to say a bunch of things that we'll pick up on next week. Because this, uh, Matthew 24 and 25, it all kind of flows together. And so you can really think of this week and the next two as really three parts. They all kind of go together. And so just fair warning on that at the beginning. But let's start here with the context of what's happening. What is Jesus answering? What's the background that leads to everything that he says here in Matthew chapter 24? And so if you were here with us last week, at the end of Matthew chapter 23, or really all of Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is in the temple. And he's teaching and he's preaching and he's saying some things to his disciples. But then right around verse 13, he churns to the religious leaders of the day and he starts to pronounce these woes. He starts to say, woe to you hypocrites. And he says that six different times, seven woes, but six times he calls them hypocrites. And he starts to lay into them. And we looked at that last week. He says some very pointed things to the religious leaders of the time. And then finally he gets done and he starts to leave the temple and listen to what he says. Look at chapter 23, verse 37. And so he finishes with these woes and what we looked at last week and it gets to the end. In verse 37, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I will tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so he leaves the temple and he says this thing there. He says, oh, uh, Jerusalem. And he's kind of weeping over it. And he's saying, if you only knew, right? Like I've come and here's God in the flesh in front of you. And I've come to gather you and you've rejected me. And you're not seeing that God himself is right in front of you. And that everything that the Bible was pointing to is now right in front of your face. And so he says this thing about, oh, Jerusalem, you've missed it. And then he says in verse 36, see your house is left to you desolate. 
And he's talking about the temple and he's talking where he is as he's walking out of the temple. And it's something that Jesus has said multiple times. As we followed through the gospels, he said this over and over about how he's come and in his coming, he's going to make the temple desolate or he's going to make it obsolete. You can go all the way back to the beginning of his ministry. If you're here with us a year and a half ago, John chapter two, he goes into the temple and he drives out the money changers and they go, who are you? And what authority do you have to do this? And do you remember what Jesus said? He says, tear this place down and in three days I will raise it up. And John tells you parenthetically in that passage, he says, we didn't understand it at the time, but what Jesus was talking about was his body. He's talking about his death. And in Jesus's death and his resurrection and what he comes to do for us, he makes the temple obsolete because we no longer go through a priest and we no longer go through sacrifices because Jesus is our perfect priest. And he's the final sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. And so as he's leaving here two days before he's going to be crucified and he's saying, you're missing who I am and you're missing what's going on. And this place is now desolate. He's saying like, this is all about to change because I'm now here. He says the same thing to the woman at the well in John chapter four. If you remember that he meets the Samaritan woman and she has some questions. He's talking very specifically to her heart and what's going on. And she wants to make it a theological discussion. And she says, well, should we as Samaritans worship on this mountain or should we worship in Jerusalem? And you know what Jesus says to her? He says, the time is coming and it's now here where it doesn't matter doesn't matter if it's that mountain or this mountain. And what he's saying is because I'm now here, the temple's going away. And so here at the end of these woes, as the religious leaders are missing it, he says this thing as he goes out. And so as he's leaving, he's telling them that. But then as they're leaving, look at the beginning of chapter 24. He left the temple and he's going away. And his disciples came to him to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Right? They're kind of saying, look at that. If you know anything about geography in Jerusalem, he goes out of the temple court, he goes down and then he comes and he comes across the Kidron Valley and then he starts to go back up the Mount of Olives. And so as you do, it's a valley that comes down, the temple sits way up on the hill and you come down and then you go across to the Mount of Olives and it's like peak to peak, you're looking back across, right? Because chapter 24 is going to tell us he sits down on the Mount of Olives with his disciples and they're looking across at the temple and they're going, isn't that beautiful? And look at these buildings and all these things and look at what Jesus says. Verse two, but he answered them. You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so he's just said it's obsolete and he's replacing the temple. But then he tells them the actual temple structure is going to be destroyed. It's going to be nothing left of it. And so then look at what happens. And this is our context here of what's going on and what they're saying. They come to Jesus, it says in verse three, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Uh, This same passage, parallel passage is in uh, Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21. You can go and kind of read the different parts. Sometimes Mark might tell you something that Matthew doesn't and so reading them together is helpful. But in Mark chapter 13, it says that it was Peter and James and John and Andrew. And they came to him quietly and they said, what did you mean? Right? And so look at what they say here. They come to him. His disciples came to him privately and they say, tell us when these things will be. Right? He just said the temple's going to be destroyed and it's obsolete. And they come to him and they say, when is that going to be? And so the first question that they're asking is, when is the temple going to be destroyed? 
But then the second thing they say, they actually ask three questions. What will be the sign of your coming? That's the second question. And then the third question, and the end of the age. And so they ask three things there. And this is really important when we start to talk about what it is Jesus says here and what he's telling us and kind of what's unfolding. He asks three different questions or he's asked three different questions that he's answering. But what often happens with Matthew chapter 24 is they all get conflated. They all get put together. And I think what happens is some of the things that Jesus is talking about, the temple in the first century that's going to happen in 70 AD, people conflate to be, well, that means his second coming. And that means the end of the age. And he's not talking about that. And I want to show you that because I think the language he uses and the things he says there, that's actually pretty clear. But I want you to think about what happens if you conflate them. The problem that causes. I was thinking about this uh, every year around Thanksgiving. I drive with my family uh, to Texas. We, do, we go to Texas to be with my family that all lives in East Texas. And we've done this many times. I've, since I went to school at A&M and all the things that I've driven to Texas along I-20 a hundred times. And you know how that drive goes? You go to south of Atlanta and you get on 20 and then you stay on 20 for 10 hours. Literally, it's just all the way across. And then you cross into Texas and you get off in the last hours, a little road to get to where we're going. And so every year the guys, the boys are like, how long is this again? It's 11 and a half hours. And I'll tell them it's 11 and a half hours and 10 of it is on I-20. But you know that we're almost there when we get off of I-20 and we get to that last little part, we're almost there. And so it'd be kind of like you just told them that. And you're driving along and you get past like Birmingham and you decide to stop and get gas and you get off the highway. And they go, oh, we're almost there. We just got off I-20. And it's like, no, 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 no. You got 10 hours on I-20 before we're even close to being there, right? And Jesus says some things here that if you conflate them all together, it gets real confusing. But he's answering three different questions. And so I want to show you what he's saying here and what he's answering. And so that context is really important. Because they come to him and ask him some specific questions. And the context is, when they say, when will these things be? He just told them about the temple being destroyed. And so how does he answer that and what is he saying? And so there's a couple things that I think point us to, I'm of the mind. By the way, there's, there's difference of opinions on this. And I don't ever want to be so arrogant that I believe this and so that's it and there's no other possibility. I always want to come to those things with great humility. But I'm going to tell you, I believe everything that we're looking at here today, 1 through 28, is talking about Jerusalem in 70 AD. I think all of that. I'm going to show you why I say that. I'm going to make my case to you. And then we'll talk about why any of that matters. But I think what happens here is Jesus is answering that question. And so they come to him and they're asking him this. And he starts to unfold for them. And he starts to tell them these things. And he says in verse uh, eight, he says, or right before that in verse six and seven, he says, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars and there'll be nations against nations and there'll be earthquakes in various places and all these things. And then he says, and all these are the beginning of the birth pains. And so he says, this is the very beginning. And I'm just telling you, when you see all that, it doesn't mean it's the end. This is the very beginning of things. And so he says that right from the beginning. But then in verse nine, he says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Again, if you look at the parallel passage in Mark chapter 13, it says almost the same thing, but it adds just a little. 
It says, yes, they're going to deliver you up. But then Mark kind of adds that you will be delivered over to councils and you'll be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings. And the language that's used there is all first century for the disciples themselves. And in fact, if you read and you go through the Bible and you read the book of Acts, the book of Acts takes you from right around this time, 30 or so A.D. to about 65 A.D. Everything that Jesus is telling them happens. They are delivered over and they are beaten in synagogues and they do stand before kings and they are hated in all these ways. And I think what he's telling them with the language he uses, he says, this is going to happen to you guys. And you're going to go through these things and they're going to come upon you. And when they do, this is just the very beginning. Now, sometimes people will go, well, that means that's future and that's not now. Some of that may be future in the sense of Jesus does warn us as his followers, there will be times that we are out of step with the world and you will be persecuted for your faith. And we know that that continues today and that's true. But I think what Jesus is addressing with them specifically here is what's going to happen to them in the first century. And so then as he continues to tell them things and he begins to talk, Verses 15 and 16, he talks about the abomination of desolation. And when you see that, flee Judea. Get out of here. Now, I'll come back to what I think he means by that in a second. But then verse 17, he says, let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house. Right? So he says, if you're up on the rooftop of your house, don't go back down into your house to get stuff. And don't go down in the street to get out. Just get out. And I think that's a very specific thing that he's saying about Jerusalem in the first century. If you know anything about Jerusalem, it's a great big, huge entryway that you come in that takes you up to the temple. But then all the people lived uh, in houses that were kind of stair-stepped up. And it kind of went up the hill and all these houses built. And they all had rooftops that had basically you could walk across the rooftops because everything was built in that way. And so I think what Jesus is saying is when these things happen and you see these things coming, if you're on the rooftop in Jerusalem, don't go down to the street, don't go to your house, get out. Get out immediately. Kind of like use the emergency exit. Don't even worry about going back. And he's talking very specifically about the way Jerusalem's built and what it looks like. And he's saying those things. But then as you get down to the end of this, and we'll come to to more of this next week as we get into it. But as you get to the end of what he's saying here in this section... Look at verses 32 to 34 there. He says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the branches become tender and they put on its leaves, you know its summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so he tells them of these signs and these things that are coming and what's going to happen. And he's answering the question of when the temple is going to be destroyed. And then he says, and all of these things are going to take place in your generation. But he also says right there at the beginning, that's the very beginning of the birth pains. And so I think he's answering this question of the temple, of when it's going to be destroyed. In fact, if you even look right after that in verse 36, but he says, but concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. And so he says, he tells them all these things and he says, it's going to happen in your generation. And then he starts to talk about his second coming and he says, no one knows when that's going to be. And it's going to come later. And so if we conflate those two together, I think we're missing the very heart of what he's saying. 
He's talking very pointedly about what happens in the first century when the temple is destroyed. And so it's important for us, I think, as we start to think about what he's actually after, because I think part of Jesus's heart here in explaining them this is that they wouldn't be fooled. Because all the way through, he says, there's going to be false prophets and there's going to be people that told you I've come again. And he's saying, but it's not even time yet. It's just beginning. And don't be fooled by that. And so really, in a lot of ways, what Jesus is saying is don't tell, take these things that I'm telling, telling you and use them as a checklist to speculate. But the sad part, that's what we do with this passage. We take it, we go, oh, well, this means this and this means that. And Jesus is going, don't do that. That's not what this means. And that's not what he's calling us to. And so he's saying these things very clearly uh, of what's going to happen, answering their question. But he's also reminding them that doesn't mean that the end's here yet. And so I want you to think about why uh, we can say that and why that's important. You know, what he does say here, if you look at verses, uh, pick up in, let's say, verse 23. He says, all these things are going to happen. And then people are going to say, uh, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and they'll perform great signs and wonder so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Right. So he's saying, I'm telling you this so you're not duped by this. By the way, there's a whole lot of evidence that right there in the first century, there were all sorts of false prophets that popped up and claimed to be the Christ in that first 40 years. Everything that was happening. It's why when you read in First Thessalonians and Paul's telling you it hasn't happened yet. You didn't miss it. Because there's all these differing opinions and things. And Jesus is saying when that happens, don't be duped by that. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go. If they say to you, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. He says, don't believe any of that. Just because these things are happening, don't believe that this is it. That this is the end. It's just the beginning. It's the beginning of the birth pains is what he says. But then look at what he says in verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and it shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the son of man. Do you hear what he's saying? Did you hear what Mike read as our call to worship at the beginning from first Thessalonians? It says Jesus is going to appear with the cry of the archangel and you're going to see it across the sky. You are not going to miss it. And so he's saying if anybody's telling you you're going to miss it, you're not going to miss it. It's going to be like the lightning that stretches across the whole of the sky. And so what Jesus is saying is, yes, all these things are going to take place, but don't let that dupe you. Don't get sucked in by that. And so he's telling us what actually happens points us to what the fall of Jerusalem is going to look like. But then there's going to be other things that come after that. And so it's important when you start to look at that. See, so many of the things that Jesus actually tells us here, I believe have already taken place. It's not this checklist for us to take and then compare with the news and go, oh, maybe this is it. It's things that have already happened, right? Like when you start to read through this, and of course, to me, the most obvious is when he says this generation won't pass away before this takes place. So that seems to put a very clear parameter on it. But then he says the things that he is telling us. I think we even have things in history that show us so clearly he knew exactly what he was talking about. Right. So like verse 15, he says, when you see the abomination of the desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He says, get out. When you see this happening. We looked at the book of Daniel 
a couple years ago. You can go back and listen to those sermons. There's one in particular where we looked at some of the visions that Daniel has where he's telling you what's going to come. So Daniel's writing in 500 BC and he gives you these visions that show very clearly what's going to happen from 500 BC almost up into the time of Jesus. And there's such detail. There's so much detail in what Daniel says that people try to say, well, Daniel couldn't have written that. It had to have been written later because he shows you exactly. He shows you that Alexander the Great is going to come and he's going to conquer the world. And after the Greek Empire, it's going to split into four different uh, smaller groups. And he tells you all of these things all the way through. But what he also shows you is the abomination of the desolation that he talks about. And that takes place in 168 B.C. A guy named Antiochus Epiphanes comes into the temple and he overtakes Jerusalem and he slaughters 40,000 people and he goes into the temple and he stops the sacrifices from happening and he takes a pig and he butchers it on the altar as the ultimate sign of sacrilege. And in fact, it tells us that he made Jews eat pork so that they would be unclean. He's making a mockery of everything that God had told the Jewish people to do. And everyone understood that that was the abomination of the desolation. That that was the fulfillment of what Daniel was talking about. And so when Jesus says here, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. I think what he's saying is when you see something like this happen again, get out of Jerusalem. And so what we know happened What we know came at 70 AD. Do you know what happened in 70 AD? The Roman general Titus led a siege on the city of Jerusalem and they destroyed Jerusalem. They brought it to nothing. And you can go back and you can read all the details of what happened. And in fact, everything that they did, Jesus told us they were going to do. There's this amazing thing in in the Gospels, right? This, This will happen uh, 70 years, 40 years after Jesus speaking here. But we even have like uh, in Luke chapter 19, right as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem for the last time, just a couple days before this, Jesus says, for the days will come when your enemies set up a barricade around you and they surround you and they hem you in on every side and they tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will leave not one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Do you know what the Roman general Titus did? He, he brought the siege on Jerusalem. It was the end of about a four-year war, 66 to 70 AD, but he finally said, this is going to end. And they had the siege on Jerusalem, and they surround the city, and they hem it in, and they block it out. They do a blockade. And for five months, no one can leave. You know what happens when you live in a city like that and you can't leave for five months? Everyone starves. Everyone died in the city. Literally starvation, so brutal and awful. You can go read the, the Jewish historian Josephus and he, he paints the picture for you of what happens. And I'll tell you, if you start reading line by line what Josephus says happens, you, you might have to close it. It is so sad and it is so heartbreaking and it is so awful what happens. But you can imagine a, a million people being blockaded into a city with no food. Do you know what happens? Everyone starts to starve to death. 1.1 million people died. Most of them from starvation. Most of them began to do awful things to one another to try not to starve. 
And all these horrible things happen that Jesus said were going to come exactly in the way he said they would come. And it does. And so what happens is he does that. They, they barricade them in. And finally, as everyone's about to starve to death, and finally they overtake the city and they come in. And Titus goes into the, to the temple courtyard and he raises the flag for the Romans and they start to say, we're in control and Caesar is God. And they start to do all the same things that Antiochus Epiphanes did. The abomination of the desolation, it happens all again. And everything that Jesus told us was going to happen, happens. And then do you know what happens? Titus burns the place to the ground. He destroys the temple. He destroys everything to the fact that Josephus says this about what happened. It was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up from the foundation. There was left nothing to make those that came to believe that ever anyone had inhabited the city. That's what Josephus says, writing about what happened in 70 AD. There's no stone left unturned and it's destroyed. And so everything that Jesus was pointing to and talking about happened in 70 AD. All of this, this passage here, it's pointing to what they asked him. That was the context. The temple's going to be destroyed. When will these things be? He begins to tell them. And this is what it looks like. And this is when you will know. And this is how it's going to go down. And this is what it's going to look like in all of it. And so Titus desecrates the temple. He takes the menorah. He takes the table of the bread of God's presence and he takes it back with him to Rome and he parades it through the street. If you've ever been to Rome, Titus's arch still stands there today. It's a giant arch. And actually on that arch depicts that scene of him taking those things from Jerusalem and parading them through the street. You can still see it today in Rome. By the way, it's right next to the maritime prison where Paul and Peter were in prison, just like Jesus told them was going to happen. And you see all these things that Jesus said that were going to happen and they all come to fruition. But sadly, what happens is Jesus was telling us this to prepare them, to get them ready, but to say to them, that's just the beginning. That doesn't mean it's the end yet. But what we've done is we take that and we use it to speculate. We use it to do eschatological rubbernecking. Ooh, is this it? And is this the thing? And we make it all about these things. And in so doing, we miss the very point of what Jesus is saying. And so what's he saying? Why does this even matter? I tell you, this is part one. I don't know if that's a whole lot of history. It's not kind of a normal sermon. There's a lot of background and all those things. Hopefully next week when we get to that, you'll see why and how some of those things come together. But why is this important? That we understand and we read in context and we take what Jesus is saying and we don't get into speculation in all these other ways. You know, all the way throughout the gospel, we've been talking about this for a year and a half. There's a huge disconnect often between what Jesus is saying and what the people are expecting, right? They want a king that's going to overthrow Rome and he's going, my kingdom's not like that. Over and over, they're like, we're going to come and make you king. And he's like, no, you're not. Right? You're going to take over. And he goes, no, 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 I've come to lay my life down. And over and over, they're saying one thing and Jesus is doing another. And there's this big disconnect all the way through. And when we start to think about all of this and the ways that we can start to speculate, what I would say to you and what I'd say to my own heart is that we can be just like the people in Jesus' day. We can miss the big picture if we're not careful. 
In fact, I think that happens a lot within Christianity today. We write books to speculate on what the end looks like and does this nation mean this nation and does this mean this? And all of what Jesus told us was not for us to do that. In fact, all the times that he tells us those kind of things is to say, don't do that. Don't make it all about all these other things. I'm telling you, these things are going to happen and he's showing us that he's king over all of it and that he wins and that he's going to rule and reign over all things. And so it's fix your eyes on me and see who Jesus is and what he's done and let that be the center of all things. Because as soon as we start to shift our focus, right? If, if, If rubbernecking is to stare with exaggerated curiosity, and we start to shift our focus on other things. Sometimes it's eschatology. And we start to try to use the Bible as a code book. And this means that. And you know what happens when we're doing that? I've seen this happen a lot. We, we'll get together and a bunch of believers will do a Bible study and we'll speculate and whatever. And we'll spend all this time together doing it. And there's no fruit that comes from it. We're so busy focused on the secondary thing that we're missing the very thing that Jesus told us to do. To go love others in the way that he's loved us. To go proclaim the good news that he's coming again. And oftentimes it takes our focus. But it's not just eschatology. We do it with our jobs. We do it with our retirement. Shoot, this week, I'm excited, college football starts. We do it with football. Right? Hey, this week, the game, and we're going to watch it. And then your team loses and then you're in a bad mood for two days. Right? I think that's a pretty good example of to stare with exaggerated curiosity at something that gets you nowhere. And we do it in all these different ways. And we lose sight of the big thing. And I'm going to tell you, I think behind all of that is a spiritual warfare. What better way to get the people of God off of the mission that God's given us than let's get together and try to figure out when Jesus is returning. Jesus says right here, no one knows the day. No one knows, not even the son of man. You know, at the end of of 1 Corinthians 15, I love that passage. Paul talks all about our glorified bodies and what is to come and how God's going to defeat sin once and for all. And we're going to have these new glorified bodies and all these things. And you know how he ends that? You know, he says right at the very end, he goes through all this thing and it's beautiful. He says, so get to work. Be abounding in love towards other and be faithful and continue to do the things that God's called you to do. And so all these things that God tells us are not to get and shift our focus to secondary things. It's to remind us that he's in control and he's at work and he knows and he knows what's coming, but you continue to trust him. And so I'll end here this morning. I remember years ago uh, having a discussion with my brother. My brother Jeremiah is a pastor in Houston. And we were talking about, I think at the time, it was right around the time I was in seminary or maybe I'd just finished. And we were talking about having discussions about things like this. And I said, oh, there's some guys I know at school and everybody wants to sit around and talk about these things. And he's like, yeah, there's a guy that I work with and he always wants to discuss the finer points of this and that. And Jeremiah said, and I still remember him vividly saying this. As we were talking about it, he said, you know, I like having those discussions. I like thinking deeply about theology. I like thinking about these secondary things and the finer points. But then he said, but when I really stop and think about it, he's like, there's just so many things that Jesus tells us that are so clear, that are so black and white, 
that he calls us to. I don't have time for the speculation on all that other stuff. I just want to do the things that Jesus has called me to do. I go, yes. I think that's what Jesus is even saying here as he's telling them. Don't let this take you off. Don't let this carry you off into other things. Just because these things happen, the time's not yet. You continue to trust me in all things. And so I would just say to you, when you're tempted, you turn on the news and you see all the mess of the world and you start to go, oh, what about this? And oh, what about that? And oh, all those things, turn it off. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He is coming again. And he's given us just this moment, as as James says, just a breath in your life. We're like the mist that vanishes before dawn. That's our life. And you get this amount of time to proclaim the name of Jesus and who he is. Don't let all these other things take you into rubbernecking, to fixing your focus on all these things that aren't important. But let's stay firm to the things that we know that are so clear and proclaim his name in all things. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you are sovereign over all history. We thank you that you see all of it. That even as you sat down and explained to your disciples and you see the things that are coming and you warn us and you tell us and you show us these things, but then you tell us to fix our eyes on you and to continue to go make disciples and to make it about you and all things. And so we pray that we would do just that. I pray when we have the temptation of looking at the world and the movements of things that are happening and nations against nations and all the mess that it's there, that we know that you are sovereign over all. We know that you are coming again and we ask that we would use our time to love you and to love you well, to continue to point others to you. I pray that those things that vie for our affections and our attention, that we would keep them in their proper place, that we would keep to seek, keep seeking you above all else for your name and for your glory. It's in